All right, so how many of you believe that the Bible is God's word? How many of you believe that? All right. How many of you know at least one person who does not believe that? Right? So I've been doing this little series uh, on apologetics uh, for the last, this is the third week. And the first week, we looked at what is known as the cosmological argument, which is the argument from first cause. The universe began to exist. That's a scientific fact. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's a philosophical reality. And since the universe began to exist, then it has a cause for its existence. So what is the most plausible cause, right? Well, since nothing doesn't produce anything, right? From nothing, nothing comes. The most plausible, the most rational cause is that some infinite mind, infinitely intelligent and powerful mind, brought the universe into existence out of that being, that entity, that mind's own resources. We call that God, right? Now, so that's just a very, very distant way of saying, you know, you can be a deist and believe this. That's people that believe that God created the universe and then just checked out, okay? Um, you can be a theist and believe this. That's people that believe that God is a personal being. Um, deists can believe God is a personal being as well, that they just don't believe that he is actively involved in the universe or in the world. Um, but nonetheless, it's a step. It's a step in the direction. Then last week, and I've, I've got to apologize. There were so many statistics last week, I felt like a little kid with his shoelaces untied, just tripping all over the place, all right? But what I tried to help you understand last week, and there's a lot more evidence than what I presented, is that the, the, the factors for life necessary that the earth possesses are exceedingly implausible to exist in other places, not just in our galaxy, but in the universe. But when you back up beyond that, in order for a, a world like ours, a planet like ours that supports not just life, rudimentary life, but complex, intelligent life, in order for that planet to come about, to exist, then there have to be some very, very precise uh, um physics causes and, and um, states of affairs that are in existence, right? And so we call these, uh, these constants, they're called the constants, constants in cosmological constant, the gravitational constant and so forth. Um, we call these, these constants the fine-tuning of the universe. And the universe is exceedingly fine-tuned. I gave you just one example, I gave you more than one example, but the one example that I gave you that has a statistic behind it that I can remember is the, the gravitational constant. Um, if the gravitational constant were moved as little as one in 10 to the 60th, right? That's a 10 with 60 zeros. It's almost impossible to understand that, except that in uh, A Case for a Creator, a book that I would recommend for you, if you're interested in these sorts of things, Lee Strobel wrote it, A Case for a Creator. Um, Lee Strobel also has a movie called A Case for a Creator. He said that if you were to stretch a ruler across the known universe, that's a big distance, and it were marked off at one-inch increments, that if you were to move the gravitational constant one inch to the right or one inch to the left, no life would be possible. If, the, if, gravity w if you moved it a little bit to the right and gravity were stronger, the universe would have already collapsed in on itself. If you moved it a little bit to the left and gravity were weaker, then the universe would not have uh, the kinds of uh, uh, constituent um, um, or uh, what am I trying to say here? Um, elements that would result in uh, rocky planets, suns, and so forth. In fact, in all likelihood, all we would have would be uh, gases like helium and hydrogen, okay? So it is plausible to believe that a universe that is so finely tuned was set up by an intelligence. And there have been some very intelligent people that have taken the step in the direction of theism as the result of that, or at least deism. And I gave you Anthony Flew as an example last week, right? So, but that just gets us to the point where we say, well, it is plausible. It is reasonable to say that there is a God, okay? Um, but that doesn't mean that we believe the Bible. That doesn't mean that we believe that Jesus is God's son. That doesn't mean that we believe the Trinity. It just means we've moved some obstacles out of the way so that that faith can occur. 
right? So the next thing I want to demonstrate is that the Bible is reliable. Now, the way I'm going to do this is um, a, a little bit different than perhaps you might expect or have experienced in the past. I want to start with what almost all historians would agree with when it concerns this person named Jesus from Nazareth in Israel, okay? Um, virtually every historian would agree with the following indisputable facts about Jesus, right? This historical figure. Now, let me back up just a step. I want to say this. The Bible is rooted in history. It's historical, not hysterical, right? It's not just an esoteric book. It's not just a book of rules and laws and so forth. It's different than other holy books in that if you can disprove the history behind it, you've disproven the book. And that, in fact, is what people have sought to do over the ages. In fact, uh, so in the uh, fifth century, um, Muhammad came along and did not agree with the Bible and uh, testifies that he received some sort of um, uh, revelation and wrote those revelations down and that you have the Quran. About 150 years ago, Joseph Smith comes along and says, no, the Bible is full of errors. It's not trustworthy. Uh, he reports that an angel visited him. He asked the angel what church he should join. The angel told him, none of them, they're all apostate. So he creates his own church and that's where we have the Latter-day Saints today. And of course, we have this book that um, is uh, claims to be, allegedly is a historical book called the Book of Mormon. The difference between the Bible and the Book of Mormon is that the claims in the Book of Mormon are not provable, right? There are no archae there is there is no archaeological evidence to prove the claims in the Book of Mormon. There's a lot of archaeological evidence to prove the claims in the Bible, right? So that's just one idea. Um, in fact, Pastor Craig this morning was uh, teaching from the book of Acts where the apostle Paul was um, speaking to the, uh, the philosophers, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers on Mars Hill or on the, uh, on the Areopagus. Um, if you, uh, Autumn, if you go to uh, Pastor Craig's, uh, um, it says Craig Bible or something like that. I was putting a picture up here earlier of the Areopagus and you were intense and focused on your, uh, on your study. But the Areopagus is an actual place in Athens, Greece today. This is, this is a classic example of what we find in the Bible all the time, that these places actually exist. And apparently she's not able to find that. I don't know where I put it. Uh, look in, look in the, the bin called stills, like still pictures and just scroll all the way to the bottom and you'll see that picture that I had up there earlier. Uh, you can put it up there at any time if you find it and then they can see it. Here are the indisputable facts about Jesus, right? This is, uh, this is showing that Jesus is a person of history. In fact, it's only been very recently, very recently that um, individuals who would claim to be historians have tried to assert that Jesus was a mythological figure, that he did not exist, right? The overwhelming uh, testimony from actual historians, even someone who is as antithetical to the Bible's claims as Bart Ehrman is that, oh, certainly Jesus existed. Well, here are, here are the indisputable facts about Jesus. First of all, he, that he existed. Uh, well, there's the painting. There it is right there. Thank you very much. You found it. That's the Areopagus. You can go visit it today. That's where the Apostle Paul spoke to those uh, philosophers. It's real. You can go and put your foot down on it, right? You go to these places that are named in the Book of Mormon and they don't exist, right? That's a good example. All right. Indisputable facts about Jesus. Number one, Jesus existed. Number two, Jesus was in fact crucified by the Romans, Number three, Jesus was buried in a new tomb of a Jewish official. His name was Joseph from Arimathea. And this was not disputed by his detractors, okay? It's really important to, to recognize that. The tomb was found empty, okay? So Jesus was in fact buried in that tomb and it was in fact found empty. Now notice I've said nothing about the resurrection at this point. These are indisputable facts, 
Jesus' earliest followers reported seeing him alive over a period of 40 days. Again, I haven't said the resurrection is actual and factual. What I am saying is that his followers believed that he rose, right? And uh, number six, most of Jesus' followers were killed for their faith in the Lord. Now, William Lane Craig, the apologist, certainly, in my opinion, and probably in the estimation of others, the greatest apologist of our time. The fellow has a, uh, a degree in theology and a degree in philosophy and has written some incredible books, okay? Uh, one of the things I recommended to you, one of the books I recommended to you that he wrote for folks in churches and in schools is a book called On Guard, and it presents uh, apologetic arguments for the existence of God and for Christianity, all right? But uh, I'm going to have Autumn play this little piece of video uh, of William Lane Craig offering these three main facts regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Now you say, well, I thought this was about the Bible being reliable. Let's focus on this person that the Bible talks about, and let's see if it is plausible to believe that he rose. Go ahead. Dr. Craig is research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology in California. He's the author of some 30 books and some 200 academic papers published in peer-reviewed journals. He's got doctorates in philosophy and theology on the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. When it comes to engaging in a conversation in the public square, or in letters to the editor, or in conversation with co-workers, then I think it's critical that Christians be able to present objective evidence in support of our beliefs. Otherwise, our claims hold no more credibility than the assertions of anyone else who claims to have a private religious experience. Fortunately, Christianity is peculiar in that it is a religion which is rooted in historical events. It makes claims which can therefore be investigated historically. Suppose then that this evening we agree to approach the documents of the New Testament, not as inspired holy books, but rather simply as a collection of documents written in the Greek language handed down out of the first century, telling this remarkable story about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, without any assumption whatsoever as to their reliability, of the same way we would approach other ancient documents for history. You might be surprised to learn that when ancient historians approach the New Testament documents with this attitude, that the majority of scholars today accept the central facts undergirding the inference to the resurrection of Jesus. These facts are four in number. Fact number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. This fact is highly significant because the disciples could never have proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem in the face of a tomb containing his corpse. Fact number two, on the Sunday morning following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Fact number three, on multiple occasions and under a variety of circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. This is a fact which is universally acknowledged today by New Testament scholars. Finally, fact number four, the original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Their leader was dead. And Jewish messianic beliefs had no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over the enemies of Israel, 
would be shamefully executed by them as a common criminal. Despite every predisposition to the contrary, the original disciples believed in and were willing to go to their deaths for their belief in the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Luke Johnson, who is a prominent New Testament critic from Emory University, muses some sort of powerful, transformative experiences is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. You need a launching pad to launch this missile. All right. So those are basic facts. And of course, we're getting the majority of those facts from the New Testament. So the New Testament is not utterly unreliable. However, uh, those that do not believe in the supernatural and do not believe in the claims that Jesus performed miracles and so forth will say, well, there are only portions of the New Testament that we can accept. In fact, uh, one of our, uh, our nation's uh, founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, created his own version of the Bible. You can look it up. It's the Jefferson Bible. And what he did is he took all the miracles out because he was a naturalist. A naturalist is somebody that believes that the supernatural is impossible. However, if you, if you go all the way back to the first, the cosmological argument, right, that I mentioned earlier that I spoke on the first Sunday, uh, the idea that the universe came into existence out of nothing, but not nothing, nothing, as in no previous matter or energy, and that a an infinite powerful and intelligent mind brought it into existence, then obviously the universe is the greatest miracle of all, okay? The fact that you're sitting there is a, a, an incredible miracle. But we chalk everything up to naturalism because that is our daily experience, right? Um, I don't, perhaps you've experienced a genuine miracle. I'm not sure that I have. I've experienced miracles of providence, I would say, where circumstances work together and, and uh, the, the Lord certainly provides and so forth. But in terms of a miracle, watching somebody walk on water, uh, watching Watching someone rise from the dead. I've seen people healed, but I think that there could be naturalistic explanations for that as well. I have to step out on faith in order to make those assertions, right? But I believe that the existence of the universe is enough reason to believe that there is a God who is certainly capable of miracles. So let's get back to the, the source material, right, for Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Jesus is a historical person, right? He died, he was buried, and the New Testament throughout, in fact, the entire New Testament is predicated on the reality that Jesus rose on the third day. We make a lot of Christmas, right? There's really only two brief sections in the New Testament that talk about Jesus' birth, but every book in the New Testament is predicated on Jesus' resurrection. It's absolutely essential. Well, can I get to the place where I can say, okay, the New Testament asserts that, it's predicated on that, it's based on that. Can I rely on it? Can I trust it as a historical document? Well, first of all, I think you have to admit that the supernatural, or call it the metaphysical or the supranatural, that is that which is beyond our natural world, is possible, right? And it's, it's really entirely up to you as to whether you accept that or not. But I think there's good reason to accept that. But let's look at, uh, let's look at the New Testament. Um, there are three major tests that one applies to ancient documents in order to discern or discover whether they are reliable. The first test is the bibliographical test. That is, how reliable are the manuscript copies of the document, all right? Um, I know of no ancient document where the original autograph exists, Okay, what happens is there is an original autograph because everything was handwritten back in the day, right? There are no typewriters, no computers, no printers. Everything was handwritten. It was handwritten on vellum or it was handwritten on parchment and those things are very, very fragile. When it comes to the New Testament, uh, there are 27 different writings in the New Testament. We think of the New Testament as being part of the Bible, which is a book. The reality is the Bible is a composition of writings, 66 different writings in the, the Bible. There are 27 different writings in the New Testament. Well, there was severe persecution that came down on those early Christians. 
This is one of those things that should cause you to ask the question, why would these people believe in the resurrected Jesus if it was implausible because they gave their lives for that belief? Okay, how did Christianity explode onto the scene and multiply so rapidly and so really universally, at least in the Western world, if uh, Jesus was just a, a, a hoax or his resurrection was just a hoax? But nonetheless, there was a lot of persecution that came down in Rome over different periods of time until the beginning of the fourth century when Constantine made Christianity a religio licite, a legal religion, right? And then the tide turned and suddenly Christianity became the dominant religion. And they honestly, it's sad, but it's true. They started persecuting other people. Okay. Um, This is what happens when people gain power. But nonetheless, in those early centuries, uh, people were persecuted strongly for their faith in Jesus as Lord in the risen Christ. And if they had documents, they were forced to burn them. Now, this is the reason why we possess no original autographs of the New Testament. We can't go and say, oh, here is the book of Acts that Luke wrote. This is the original one. That's, that's Luke's handwriting. No, what we have are copies, right? And copies of copies, but we have many copies. So we'll talk about that. The bibliographical test means how reliable are these manuscript copies that we have? Two is the internal evidence test. Does the document disqualify itself due to internal inconsistencies and or contradictions? Now, is this is something that the Bible gets um, uh, accused of all the time. Well, the Bible's just, you know, it's full of contradictions and full of errors. Very interesting. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. But I think the internal evidence, and I'm not alone in this, uh, is very strongly supportive of the integrity of the New Testament. And then finally, thirdly, there's the external evidence test. Do documents of the same time period recognized by scholars as historically accurate, confirm or deny the information in the document under consideration, all right? So let's start with the bibliographical evidence, right? Uh, That is uh, the proximity and number of manuscripts. Um, F.E. Peters says that the New Testament is the most frequently copied, widely circulated group of works in antiquity, There are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts and 5,664 of those are in Greek. That is the original language of the New Testament. Now contrast this with another group of documents that were discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt in 1945 called the Gnostic documents. Have you heard of the Gnostic Gospels, right? The Gospel of Thomas. Um, There are all of these different Gnostic Documents. Now, the Gnostics were, uh, it was a Neoplatonic philosophical school that basically adopted Jesus and used him as sort of a teacher for their school of thought, okay? Um, in 1945, in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, 52, to, 52 scrolls were discovered. There's one copy of each. Some were attested to by ancient Christian authors who deny their authenticity, now let's look at an ancient manuscript comparison. There is a graphic up there that you can uh, that you can put up, Autumn, about this comparison. Um, let's look at the works of Plato. Plato wrote between 427 and 347 BC. That means between uh, the fourth and fifth century before Christ. There are seven copies of Plato's work. The oldest copy is 900, um, that exists, the right manuscript copy, is, uh, comes from 900 AD. That means it comes from 1,200 years after Plato wrote. How about Aristotle, Plato's famous student? Uh, he lived between the, well, he lived in the fourth century, between 384 and 322 BC. There are 49 copies of his work. The oldest, however, is from A.D. 1100, that's 1,400 years later. Now, one of the best attested or the best attested ancient document aside from the New Testament documents is Homer's Iliad. Homer wrote all the way back in 900 B.C. However, there are 643 copies of Homer and the earliest is from 400 B.C., but that's still 500 years later. Alexander, now this isn't on that graphic, but uh, that graphic has some other uh, authors and writers and so forth, all right? Um, but let's, let's uh, consider Alexander the Great. Do you believe in it, that Alexander the Great existed? 
okay? What do you think, or when do you think, the earliest manuscript that describes his life? When do you think that, that or what date do you think that is? Let's just, Let's stop for just a moment because you may not uh, think of the history here. Alexander the Great conquered the, the known world at that time. I, we went all the way to India, okay? Uh, this is the, the famous quote that, you know, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer, right? And then he died probably of syphilis in 323 B.C. Um, this huge conquest that, that went on really for just a little over a decade, and then he died. Um, he changed the world. Right, The entire Western world was exposed to Hellenistic culture, to Greek language and culture, as the result of Alexander the Great conquering all of those nations. Right, So there's evidence that Alexander the Great existed and that he did uh, conquer the known world. But what is the, the date of his earliest biography? Well, the two earliest biographies of Alexander the Great were written by Arian and Plutarch more than 400 years after Alexander's death in 323 BC. Wow. So how can we trust those documents or the data on those documents when they're so far away from Alexander's life. How do we know that it was accurately passed on? Well, we would need to look at those documents and the sources that they used and so forth, right? Um, let's compare the New Testament. The earliest fragment of the New Testament is from AD 120 or 130, and uh, it is uh, um, a fragment of John chapter 18, and I have uh, a a, a picture of that autumn uh, up there. Um, and uh, this is it right here. This is the fragment of John's gospel. Now that might not look like a lot to you, but one side contains portions of John 18, 31 through 33, and the other side concerns, uh, contains portions of John 18, 37 and 38. Interestingly, the conversation that uh, Pilate had with Jesus when Jesus said he came to testify of the truth and Pilate said what? What is truth here on the oldest fragment of the New Testament in existence, okay? Well, assuming that Jesus was crucified somewhere in the vicinity of 30, it may have been, may have been as late as 33 AD, then we're talking about a fragment of a manuscript that is about 100 years later. There are extensive quotations by authorities prior to the second century. There are so many quotations of the New Testament. Bruce Metzger was a, the research professor of this sort of thing, of documents and ancient uh, um, scrolls and that sort of thing at Princeton University. He was the uh, primary editor for the New Revised Standard Version. Interestingly also, Bruce Metzger was um, the... Uh, the teacher, the professor who taught the famous uh, skeptic who debunks the Bible all the time, Bart Ehrman. So uh, Bruce Metzger had a very strong faith in Christ and he was extremely familiar with these documents, right? Uh, Metzger says, there are so many quotations of the New Testament so many quotations by the church fathers and by commentators that it could be reconstructed without manuscripts, right? So um, what we have to ask ourselves is exactly when and how could the text become corrupted when we have so many copies that date so early? Uh, here's a quote. Moreover, there is no precise time when the falsification of these documents could have occurred since the New Testament books are cited by the church fathers in regular and close succession. Another quote, the text could not have been falsified before all external testimony since the apostles were still alive and could repudiate any such tampering. So it's like a uh, purported contradictions in the Bible. Actually, you know what I want to do? I want to go over here real quickly and make sure that I have covered all the stuff that I wanted to cover here. Um, all right. This isn't like me teaching the Bible that I look at all the time. Uh, this is stuff I have to refresh myself. All right, so that's the number of manuscripts, the proximity of the manuscripts, right? Um, I showed you that oldest little fragment, but there are actually over 5,000 manuscripts that exist prior to AD 500. 
And then we mentioned the extensive quotations by authorities prior to the second century. Um, so there are many copies of various portions of the New Testament, and they're very, very early. They go all the way back, okay? Um, the text has also remained unmarred by heretical additions, the abundance of manuscripts over a wide geographical distribution. That's interesting also. That little fragment of John was found near Egypt. Now, the reason why we have these parchment fragments that are found around Egypt is because the weather is so dry, okay? So you don't have uh, moisture get in and, and cause deterioration in those uh, documents. So according to canon and biblical expert uh, that I mentioned, Bruce Metzger of Princeton, not one of the estimated uh, 200,000 manuscript differences challenges the significant doctrine of the church. So let's look at, look at internal evidence. So we move from bibliographical evidence. We say, okay, now we have so many copies and they are so close to the original event that those copies are more than likely accurate representations of the original autograph. Because if they're just copies of copies of copies, then you don't know if you've ever gotten back to the original autograph. But we have so many, we can cross-reference them. And that's exactly what they do with your New Testament, by the way. Okay, um, The Bible's not written in English. Okay, The Bible is written in Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And a little bit of it is written in Aramaic. Well, since you and I don't read Hebrew and Greek, I read a little bit, but not enough to uh, teach solely out of it, then we are reliant upon translations. So when people tell you, well, there's so many translations of the Bible, you can't trust it. No, that's exactly why you should be able to trust it, because you can compare those translations, right? This is my New Living Translation. This is a more dynamic translation. When I read it, it's a little more understandable to you. On Wednesday, I teach from the New American Standard Bible, which is very literal and word for word. And I can lay those down alongside each other. And of course, since I did study Greek, I can look at the original language. I'm not like super awesome at it, but I can look at the original language and I can kind of understand what's going on there. But for you, having multiple healthy, as in good translations of the New Testament, that will help you kind of get back to what the original is saying. Well, use that same logic, that same idea to multiple manuscripts. There are differences in manuscripts, right? But we can compare them, and these scholars use probability to, to, to determine what goes back to the original. Here's a, here's a good uh, little experiment. Uh, experience for you. Um, the oldest complete Bible in existence is called Codex Sinaiticus, right? Say Sinaiticus. Okay, it's like Mount Sinai, S-I-N-A-I, cus, C-U-S. Enter that in a search engine and you can actually go and look at this Bible. It's all in Greek, right? Uh, the the uh, people who were reading it couldn't read Hebrew, so the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And you can look at this thing. It's amazing. It's really, really cool. It dates from the middle of the fourth century, about 350 BC. Um, so you can look at Sinaiticus, and then you can look at all of these, uh, or you and I can't because these are not all available, but all these other fragments that are available and compare them and, and contrast them and come up with what we have. All right, uh, internal evidence. Does the document disqualify itself due to internal consistencies and or contradiction of known facts? Um, the Gospels show intimate knowledge of Jerusalem prior to its destruction by the Romans in AD 70. Um, J. Warner Wallace, who's written this book called Cold Case Christianity, where he applies his tools as a cold case detective to reading the New Testament documents. Um, he indicates that, or he believes, and he's not the only one to say this, that all of the gospels, or at least the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written prior to 70 AD, and I would be in agreement with that. Uh, most scholars, and I would be in agreement, agree that John was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but prior to uh, 100 AD. John was the youngest disciple. He lived the longest. And we talked about that, okay? Um, so this is why the gospel show intimate knowledge of Jerusalem prior to its destruction by the Romans in 70 AD. If you have a bunch of people that are coming along and writing these gospels out, 
you know, just trying to convince people to believe what they believe, and they haven't been to Jerusalem and they didn't know what it was like before the Romans came in and destroyed it, then they would obviously have a lot of geographical problems. And you don't see that in the Bible. The gospels are filled with proper names, right? Um, there's been a survey done of ancient documents looking at the proper names, okay? Um, the, the most common names of the day. What do you think the most common uh, boy name is today? Does anybody know? Sean, what did you say? John? I don't think so, but I will tell you this. About a decade ago, the most popular boy name was Jacob. So if you were writing, if you were writing a book that was supposed to be from 10 or 20 years ago and you were using names like Elmer and Edna, people would be like, uh, no, I don't know. Did, have you ever known anybody your age named Elmer? Oh, what? <laughs> well, you did name your son Ransom, so it's okay. <laughs> All right. Anybody know a female that is really even my age named Edna? No, because they're really, th th those were common names in the earlier part of the 20th century, but you know, those people have passed away. I use Elmer because he was my next door neighbor when I was a teenager, and he was already in his 80s or 90s at that point. I use Edna because that was my grandma's name. Her name was Edna, right? Uh, but the point is, all of the names that are used in the New Testament are accurate. They're spot on. The most common female name in Jesus' day was what? What do you think? Mary. Mary. There's a hundred Marys in there, right? And you would think if somebody was just writing, they'd be like, yeah, that's too many Marys. We need to come up with some other names. No, it's like, it, it, you don't care what it sounds like or seems like. If it's true, it's true, okay? And actually, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua was a fairly common name. Jude or Judah, right? Judas was a fairly common name. They did this survey of names, and yeah, New Testament is spot on, all right? Um, the uh, inclusion of apparently contradicting contradictory details in the synoptics uh, would mitigate against any case for forgery or collusion. This was another thing that J. Warner Wallace pointed out. He said that when he would read the transcripts of interviews that police did 20, 30, 40 years before, and he would look at multiple witnesses, he could tell whether those were authentic testimonies or not. And then he would compare them if he would go back. Let's say somebody uh, 20 years before had been arrested for murder, but they didn't have enough evidence to convict them, right? So they got off. And then Jay Warner Wallace, cold case Christianity guy, comes along and he reads their testimony, he reads the original notes by the officers and then he sits down and he interviews them himself and then he compares those. Well, as Wallace looked at these different testimonies from these, uh, these witnesses, right? He said it very much reminded him of what he saw when he read testimonies by these uh, witnesses who had had their testimony transcribed and written down. He said it's, it was very realistic, okay? What you would expect, Wallace is not the only one that has observed this, what you would expect from a group of documents, and you have these ex intense, extreme skeptics that want to say, well, the, the New Testament was just written by a bunch of people uh, that uh, wanted to convince everyone that Christianity was true. Well, there are apparent, that is, surface contradictions, right? In fact, in New Testament studies, uh, there is a, uh, a study or a, a school of thought or, or a discipline um, that examines what is known as the synoptic problem, okay? The synoptic gospels are the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you compare them, they are remarkably similar. Now, Luke brings in details that Matthew and Mark don't have. Matthew brings details in that Mark and Luke don't have, right? Long story short, most scholars believe Mark was written first, and then Luke, and then Matthew, or sometimes they'll reverse those two, okay? But... There are times when they're covering the same event or incidents, especially the resurrection, when the details are different. 
Now, that has caused some people like Bart Ehrman to say, well, you can't trust the, the New Testament. You can't trust these people because their testimony is not, does not completely agree. Once again, J. Warner Wallace said, when you take witnesses of the same event, okay, and you put them in different interrogation rooms, if they all say the same thing, you say, nope, something's wrong here. Something's up. Because people don't do that. If they all say the same thing, then they've been told or have agreed to say the same thing. These people didn't say the same thing because they were human. Now, I put this, I'm going to have to wrap this up pretty quick here because I don't want to keep you here all day. I'm more interested in this stuff than you might be. Um, <laughs> but in any event, you've been very patient. Thank you. Uh, but I just want you to have uh, confidence in this book, right? Enough confidence to say, okay, I think that I could take the next step, step into faith or at least, okay, Pastor Darrell, I'll go ahead and read it. I'll check it out and I'll see, you know, how it affects me, how it impacts me and so forth, right? But nonetheless, um, this idea of um, the slight variations between the witnesses is actually evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament, for the reliability of the New Testament, not against it, okay? Um, now, some people's uh, idea of inspiration would go against that. There are people that believe that the Bible, I believe the Bible is inspired by God, no question about it. However, go to my blog, I don't write on it very often, but go to deorl.com, D-E-O-R-L.com, D-E-O-R-L.com, and the latest article that I posted is a series of statements about the Bible. And one of the things that I want you to realize is, and recognize is, the Bible is a collaboration between humans and God. Human beings were inspired, but they're still human beings. Listen, all you have to do is read the letters of Paul. Paul actually, in 1 Corinthians, corrects himself. And, you know, the amanuensis, that is the person that was writing down what Paul said, didn't say, okay, well, let's scratch that out. We don't have to put that in there. Paul says, I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he says, oh, wait a minute. I also baptized so-and-so and so-and-so, but I don't remember who else I baptized. That's in it. That's in the Bible. A real human being showing his weakness, like me earlier going, duh, 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 duh. I can't find the word I'm looking for, okay? Because we're real humans, Paul was inspired by God. Luke was inspired by God. But they didn't go into a trance and start writing the Bible. And they woke up from the trance and were like, huh? Huh? Give me a break, right? The only instance we have of anything being written by the quote-unquote finger of God is the Ten Commandments, right? But everything else, God inspired through human beings, and human beings are human, Right? We're frail, we're weak, we make mistakes. You say, there, there's mistakes in the Bible? I don't believe it. I think that it is infallible in all that it asserts, okay? But there are plenty of things in the Bible that are not claiming to be the word of God. They're simply presenting uh, the opinion of these individuals. So here's a good example. Um, there are Psalms, all right? They're called the imprecatory Psalms that contain some really, really, Nasty, hateful things, okay? Um, you know, we don't have any kids down here really now, so I can use this one. Uh, there's a psalm where the psalmist says he wishes that the, the babies of his enemies would have their heads, I need to hurry up, bashed against the rocks. We have kids coming in the background. That's disturbing. But it expresses that psalmist's honest emotions. Look at what is happening in Israel today. You need to be praying for Israel, right? These folks came in, they have kidnapped people and taken them over into Palestine, right? There's, a, there's video of this, this, this guy grabbing this woman and she's bloody and he's dragging her out of the back of a truck and he's putting, in there, putting her in another vehicle and they're gonna take her over onto the other side. They kidnapped children, right? you can understand why those people would be enraged. There is as much division in modern Israel today politically as there is in the United States. But right now, Hamas has made a huge error. 
because all they have done is unified Israel. The extreme left and the extreme right are like, no, this is not going to happen. If they thought they could scare the Israelis off, they made a serious mistake. Right? There's lots of folks in Israel that don't care for Netanyahu. He's very, very conservative. And of course, as I said, there are a good number of liberals. But you know what? He's standing up and he's saying, we're going to change the face of Palestine for the next 50 years. You can't do that to people. What I'm saying is God allows the honest emotions of his people to come in even to his word. And you find that there. Okay. Well, the final thing, and I'm just going to cover this quickly, is the external evidence test. That is, are there documents outside of the New Testament that agree with the New Testament? And there are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump here really quick, and I'm going to read a couple of quotes. The first one is from Josephus. He was a first century Jewish historian. He was born in AD 37, so he was born uh, four to four to seven years after Jesus was crucified. He writes this in his Testimonium Flavianum. He convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. That's, a, I'm sorry, that was, that's a different quote. That's from the Antiquities. And here's the one from Testimonium Flavianum. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed he ought to be called a man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him and the tribe of Christians so-called after him has still, uh, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, I will tell you, there is a good bit of controversy about this testimonium Flavianum as to whether Christians influenced it. But uh, Warner Wallace in Cold Case Christianity found an Arabic translation of this that escapes that uh, particular um, contradiction. Here's from Tacitus, who's a first century Roman historian. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated, on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And he goes on. When you have a hostile witness that testifies to the truth, right, that testifies to the factual data that is that are, uh, is given to you by um, beneficial witnesses, then you've got a good example of testimony that could be trusted. And finally, Pliny the Younger wrote in the early second century, he was the Roman governor of Bithynia. He said, I have asked them if they are Christians and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution for whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. So this is a guy that kills Christians. Now listen to what he says. They also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this, that they met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God, and also bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. So details from secular accounts agree with the picture of the first century Palestine found in the New Testament. Um, So the conclusion, the New Testament... Uh, as F.E. Peters said, is the most reliable collection of ancient documents in existence. This is what B.B. Warfield, a professor at Princeton, uh, actually one of uh, um, Bruce Metzger's professors, this is what he said. If we compare the present state of the New Testament with any other ancient writing, we must declare it to be marvelously correct. Such has been the care with which the New Testament has been copied, a care which has doubtless grown out of true reverence for its holy words. The New Testament, unrivaled among ancient writings in the purity of its text, has actually transmitted and kept in use. So 
this is the only reliable source for our faith in Christ. This is the only source that we are going to go to consistently to test whether our faith and practice is right and true. This book claims to be the inspired word of God. I believe that, but it is not unreasonable for me to believe that. You may or may not believe that yet, but what I tried to prove to you today or provide evidence for you today is that it is not unreasonable for you to look into this and consider whether or not it actually presents uh, the, the truth about God and the truth about his son, Jesus. Well, if you want to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, um, we can accept the Old Testament as reliable and inspired scripture too. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then in Luke 24, 44, after his resurrection, Jesus said, all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Um, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament extensively. Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament extensively. So we could talk about the Old Testament by itself, but I tried to demonstrate to you that from the existence of Christ, from the plausibility that he was raised from the dead, from the historicity of the events and places and names described in the New Testament, that I think we have good reason to look at it as a reliable source of history. And if that is true, then it claims that Jesus, well, here's the quote. Uh, this is from a, um, a church creed, probably the earliest church creed, that dates from between three and five years of the... Uh, crucifixion and resurrection. The apostle Paul says, what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he gives a series of appearances. He appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then the apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one untimely born, okay? That is a testimony, a creed that was repeated among Christians that goes all the way back to within a few years of the event it describes. I agree with that, I believe that, and I commend it to you as well. And uh, I know this has kind of been a brainy service, uh, kind of an intellectual service, lots of facts thrown at you, not a lot of emotions here, but I hope that maybe you can clear away some of the, the clutter and some of the obstacles to believing that the Bible is God's word, all right?